0: I'm looking forward to today. But first, kids, you can head out that way, your left, my right, to be taught God's word in age appropriate ways. Thankful for our children's volunteers, children's ministry volunteers who do that for us. All right. So we're in Genesis 29. And as Joanna just read for us, I'm sure you're thinking, how in the world are we going to see the gospel today? <laughs> um, it doesn't seem to be shining through super clearly. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to take time, we're just going to dive into the story, we're going to see how is Jacob trusting his eyes, and the title of the sermon today is going to be Grace That Is Greater, Grace That Is Greater Than What We Can See, is gonna be our theme for today. But before we get too much further down the road there, I want you to think back to your wedding day. If you're married, think back to your wedding day and what a magical day that was, I'm sure, right? The the preparation might have been uh, pretty stressful for you. The um, planning, the invitations, getting those out, making sure everybody RSVP'd. Uh, There's a lot of things that go into the preparation for the wedding day. However, you get to the day and you're told every place you're supposed to be at every particular time, you're told what to say, and so you say it, and then you get done with the wedding ceremony, you're wed, you get to kiss your bride or your husband finally, and then you go to the reception. And at the reception, there's probably the most stress-free, anxiety-free, just most magical part of, uh, at least when I remember, the day, which was the first dance The first dance, you're at the ceremony, and maybe you didn't have a first dance. I recognize not everybody does, but at our first dance, and what I want you to do is to think about, okay, either what was the song that you danced to at your first dance, um, or if you didn't have a first dance, what would have been the song that you maybe wish you would have danced to? I'm going to list off a couple and see if any of these are your first dance. First one, At Last by Etta James. Anybody with, to the first dance to At at Last, right? Oh, it's beautiful. I'm surprised nobody did. Elvis Presley's Can't Help Falling in Love with You. Anybody dance to that? No, okay. Anybody, Ed Sheeran, perfect. Oh, you're just looking into your spouse's eyes. You are Perfect. Or maybe Frank Sinatra, The Way You Look Tonight. Maybe you had a day wedding and that didn't fit. (laughs) Maybe it was This Will Be by Natalie Cole. Or maybe you're more of the country flavor and so Loving You Is Easy by Zac Brown Band was more your flavor. For us, Emily and I, we sang to Josh Groban's, um, let me remember. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. Don't tell her, she's in kids ministry. (laughs) When You Say You Love Me, it's a beautiful song. Maybe I didn't mention yours or what you would have said, but whatever yours was, I'm sure it was magical. However, today, as we read Jacob's story, we see two weddings take place. The second one, for sure, probably the first dance would have been one of those songs. Oh, the way you look tonight. But the first one... Probably was more along the lines of U2's hit song. Something or, or wait, what is it? <laughs> still haven't found what I'm looking for. <laughs> what a terrible first song that would have been. <laughs> first dance. Still haven't found. What... Uh oh. But for Jacob, this was <laughs> probably his reality. Yet God's relentless grace will show up this morning and will show us our big idea that we've already mentioned, that God's grace is greater than what we can see. So let's look to see how he got into this predicament. And as we come to our text this morning, I'll ask you to bear with me. Uh, we're gonna get to two main points, but let me set a little bit of the stage here as we get going, give a little context as we dive in. In Genesis 28, just last week, we saw and we're acquainted with a kind of renewed Jacob, a new Jacob of some sorts who had just beheld a vision of glorious splendor. He saw a ladder, angels going up and down the staircase, Yahweh standing above the staircase, and he received a rock-solid promise. Yahweh says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised to you. Oh, Beautiful. We see a sprout of faith in Jacob's life as he paints a picture of what God's faithfulness to him was going to look like. And here at the beginning of chapter 29, Jacob is continuing his journey northeast toward the Mesopotamian region. So as part of our context here, verse 1, we see this rejuvenated Jacob, this kind of pep in his step Jacob. Look there in verse 1 with me as we still kind of get this Context, Verse one, then Jacob went on his journey. The phrase here, Jacob went on his journey, could literally be translated, he picked up his feet. That's interesting. This is actually the only place in the whole Bible, in the whole Hebrew Old Testament, where this phrasing shows up. And what it tells us, we get the idea that Jacob got going with vigor. So after the vision Jacob's got a vigor to his step. And it's a good thing because he had only, uh, as up to Bethel, where he sees this vision, had only traveled about 50 miles from Beersheba, which is his hometown where his parents still live. So to put this journey, uh, so, so he would have to travel another 450 miles before he actually got to the land that he was going. To put this into perspective for us, the first leg of his journey, these first 50 miles, would have been about the distance from Brownsburg to Edinburgh. Edinburgh, where the outlet's all we, all, we all love going shopping at the outlets, right? I didn't hear any amens there. Maybe it was just my family. Jacob, though, had 450 more miles to go to complete this 500-mile trip. And so if let's just say you just keep heading south on I-65 I mean, you would breeze right through Louisville, get to Nashville, and still have 200 more miles to go before you made it to Birmingham, Alabama, which is about 500 miles that he went on foot. So it's a good thing that he got going with vigor. (laughs) So we're acquainted with this kind of new Jacob. But as a warning, the old, familiar, deceptive, do whatever you can to get what you want, Jacob will also return. He wants the inheritance and the blessing promised to him through his mom, and so he goes for it, he takes it. And like most of us, Jacob was a piece of work, but was also a work in progress. And this is most accurately seen in in our text this morning, in what Jacob sees, in what Jacob sees. So he becomes focused on a couple particular things in our text this morning. So we kind of see a contrast here where Isaac's eyesight failed, his dad's eyesight was failing. Jacob trusted his eyes. And that's the first point that we'll learn this morning. First, trusting our old eyes brings trouble. Trusting our old eyes brings trouble. We'll spend the majority of our time here in this point, main point this morning, dissecting what this looks like for Jacob. And what we're saying very simply is that Jacob trusted his eyes to a fault. What I want you to be on the lookout for in our text this morning is is all of the kind of words that have to do with what Jacob is, is seeing with his optical orbits, okay? What is he seeing? And that will tell us what he is trusting, Right away, beginning in verse 2, we are introduced to a couple of words that provide for us a thematic backbone. The thematic backbone of our passage. These words are going to be very important to note as we go through our time this morning. So let's just look back down. Let's start reading in verse 2 to see what these words are. Look at the first five words there with me. As he looked, he saw. Okay. As he looked, he saw. In Hebrew, this is just two words. There's a prefix that kind of gives the and and he in there as well. But this is really just two words here, basically looked and saw. These five English words, uh, we'll actually see here, the, the two Hebrew words are translated kind of basically the same into English. You see ra'ah there, see or look is the definition, but hinah, which will actually provide more of the backbone of our time this morning, is see, look, behold, with an apostrophe at the end of those. So it's kind of uh, shoulder shaking is what Hinnah is supposed to be for us. As you can see, these, ber- these words basically mean the same thing for us. And it means for us, as we read this morning, that Jacob is being governed by his eyes. And though he trusts them now, his sight will Turn on him. So let's look down to see actually where these verses or where these words show up in our passage this morning. Here in verse two, we see three of the words looked, saw, behold. In verses six and seven, we see see, and then behold. Verse 10, saw, and in verse 25, behold. All right, so this is our thematic. Backbone. This provides for us what we'll need to see in this text this morning. These words used back and forth throughout, kind of building this backbone for us, helps us to see that how trusting our old eyes brings trouble. You may want to, just as we kind of go through the text, just make a column off to the side and jot down where these words show up and what they are telling us about Jacob's trust. So back to verse 2. We could woodenly translate this, the beginning of this verse is, he looked and behold. These two words smushed back together give us a good start for seeing this thematic background. But let's keep reading to see what, where this shows up elsewhere. And he saw, he saw a, a well in a field and behold, <gasps> there it is again. That's our word, "hinna." So behold, there is a well. Okay, so Moses is, is kind of giving us this idea. We're looking for these words that have to do with what we see. So we've got to ask the question, what is Jacob beholding here? So let's look back down and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, it the well, for out of that well, the flocks were watered. The beholds, in this passage, show us what Jacob desired. And this is the first step that we'll see actually in Jacob's life of how trusting our old eyes brings trouble and that's this. starts with a desire. It starts with a desire. Now, desiring something is not inherently a bad thing. Window shopping is not what's being discouraged here. Desire can be a very good thing. Paul would actually say, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or pastor, he desires a noble task. That is a good thing to desire. And men, I would encourage you, you, if you don't desire that, maybe ask yourself, why not? Are there areas in your life, characteristics, character qualities about your life that you're saying, man, maybe I'm just not lining up here to where I could be. I encourage you, seek the Lord and ask him to grow those areas in your life. If anyone aspires the office, he desires a noble task. That's a good desire. Jesus told his disciples that desires aren't what uh, defile you. He actually says that what goes into the body is not what defiles you, but what comes out of the inner life of a person. That's what defiles him. It's more where, what your defi- uh, desires say about your inner life. John would say, which Pastor Justin prayed for us this morning in 1 John 2, that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are not from the Father, but those are from the world. As we'll see, the first step of desires, or we could also say lust, of the flesh and of the eyes, leads to further steps of idolatry and deception. So, Let's get back to our story and see this in action. So, Jacob shows up and beholds a well and three flocks of sheep. And then, notice at the end of verse two that the stone on the well's mouth was large. So large that it took quite a few shepherds to move the stone off the mouth of the well. So, Jacob rolls up on the shepherds in verse four, starts pleasantries. And while getting to know where these guides are from, Jacob finds out that they're from the land that he was on a journey to find. He was, they were from his destination. He quickly asks if they know and if everything is well with Laban of Nahor. Nahor would have been Jacob's maternal great-grandfather, so Rebekah's grandpa. Shepherds respond to him in the second half of, the, of verse 6 when they say, it is well, and see, it's our word, hinna, there, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Here we, here we are again. Jake, or, or Moses, in his storytelling, um, says that the shepherds exclaimed to Jacob, Behold, Rachel! That's a good start to the story for Jacob. Jacob immediately is struck, not knowing Rachel had a sister. Jacob probably immediately thinks, Here comes my future wife. He's on a mission from his parents to find a wife and sees his destiny coming towards him. He wants to seize that destiny. Even though it is the shepherd saying, behold here, Jacob is the one doing the beholding and falling in love. I don't know if you've ever experienced love at first sight, but the text kind of gives us the indication that's what's going on. On here, and I could tell you from firsthand experience that this kind of beholding of love at first sight is a jaw dropping, whoa! Like that's what Jacob probably would have been thinking here. Whoa! Now, Jacob is gripped by what he sees, and so he works together to get the shepherds away from the well. <laughs> so, Jacob says in verse 7 Look there with me, behold. There, there, there it is again. There's Hinnah again. It's a little bit different. It's more of like a hey, come on, guys. Um, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. <laughs> Jacob employs a familiar scheme to get some alone time with the girl who's coming. He believes this is gonna be his future wife. So you can imagine Jacob being kinda like a sophomore boy who his crush is standing right in front of him and his friends are hanging around joking on him, saying how ugly he looks. And he's like, come on guys, get out of here. Don't you have somewhere else you could be? Jacob wants to get some alone time. And so he says, guys, like, go just pasture the, the sheep. Water them, quick. And go. So while they're sitting there sorting things out, Rachel comes up with her father's sheep. And as soon as Jacob sees Rachel up close, he goes kind of into a full frenzy trying to impress her mode and trying to get the other shepherds away from there. So look back at verse 10. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. (laughs) He is like, if it takes rolling the stone off the well to get these shepherds out of here, and also if I can show my strength (laughs) to Rachel a little bit, maybe something can happen. Now, we don't know, again, if this is just an uncommon feat of strength or if it was a rush of adrenaline or hormones uh, or if Jacob just happened to be a strapping young man able to move a rock this size that three plus shepherds couldn't move. It seems pretty remarkable. Before we go much further, did you catch that another one of our Hebrew words popped up here in verse 10? Look back there with me. Now, as soon as Jacob saw, pause, there it is again. This is one of our look-see words. Jot that over in your column if you're, if you're doing that. So what did he see and what does that show about what he desired? Well, Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. The repetition here of who these belong to now actually foreshadow for us in a couple chapters what Jacob will be stealing away from Laban, his uncle. He then goes on in verse 11, he kisses Rachel with a, a familial kiss of greeting. So there's no real sexual connotation here at all in this kiss. However, we're gonna see that after he makes the, con- the family connection with her, that his mouth begins to water a little bit. He makes clear to her, hey, I'm your cousin, and she is like, oh, okay, you know, that's interesting. And he, he tells her what the relationship is. And no doubt she had heard stories about her Aunt Rebecca, who was whisked away to marry an exorbitantly wealthy, distant relative. Even though Jacob's kiss was innocent, Jacob's longing looks are emphasized even more kind of like a cherry on top by what he does after he moves the stone from the well's mouth. So look back at the end of chapter or of verse 10. He watered the flock. Then at the beginning of 11, he kissed Rachel. Now those two actions, those two actions of watered and kissed, those two words in Hebrew sound similar. It would have been a literary, a audible device Cluing that these were actually words that were to be seen together as a pair communicating one thing. The connection shows Jacob's intense desire for Rachel and the flocks, for the sheep and the shepherdess. In our language, you could say that Jacob's mouth was watering as he longingly looks both at the flock and at Rachel. So what does Jacob do? Well, he trusts his old eyes. He trusts his old do-whatever-it-takes-to-get-what-you-want ways. Laban, we see next in the story, runs out to greet him. And at this point, Jacob meets his new enemy. Now, he doesn't realize it yet. He thinks Laban is an uncle of integrity. And so he goes in and he tells Laban his story He says, he tells them all of these things. Most likely, he did not tell him about all of the deceptive practices that he had done to Esau. Probably didn't tell him he stole the inheritance, stole the blessing, ran away, didn't want to probably make himself out to be a coward, said, I'm on a mission from my parents, from your sister. But nonetheless, he goes into Laban's house and confirms that he is indeed his sister's son. Laban welcomes him in and, finds, and gives him refuge in his house. And so after a desire, though, we see in Jacob's life that then a deal is made. And that leads us to our second step of how trusting our eyes brings us trouble, and that's when a deal is struck. Now remember, at the end of chapter 28, Jacob receives a promise from God. And then seems to strike a deal with God. God, if you do this, this, and that, then you will be my God. Seems to think himself as quite the deal maker. And because of that, we come to the, really the climax of our story. After a month of Jacob being there and working with him, Laban seems to honorably ask Jacob how he can pay him, more than likely to keep him around for a little bit longer, Free labor, or cheap labor, is always nice. Jacob wants a wife, and so again, he thinks he'll attempt to strike a deal to marry Rachel. Both the daughters are presented to Jacob, and Leah the older is described as having weak eyes. Rachel, the younger then, is beautiful in form and appearance. And the climax of the whole story is revealed at the beginning of verse 18. If you look there with me, Jacob loved Rachel. He found the love of his life and it was expressed. He loved her because he had seen her and knew this is the wife that I desire. This means that he, so he placed his love on her, chose her over her sister. He thought she was gorgeous and so he loved her. Now, lest we compare these two women believing that one is a beauty and the other is a beast, the word used here to describe Leah's eyes could also, along with weak, be translated gentle, soft, or tender. I think actually some of those rightly describe what's going on here. Some translators want to contrast Rachel's astounding beauty with Leah's lack of astounding beauty, it seems as though. But there's no clear indication that a contrast is going on. Even the word but in here uh, could be translated and or but in even comparison, sometimes you use the word but to just show the greater uh, after in the... NFL draft, there's one quarterback that's got really good vision, but the other quarterback has a great arm, is really mobile. We do this in comparison, and so comparison is what's at play here. Now, what does this mean for us? It means that the beauty of both is what's being described. Leah's gentle, tender eyes are the standout characteristic for her. So rather than destroying the dignity of Leah's appearance due to not being the loved one, Moses dignifies her by the inspiration of the Spirit, actually dignifies her knowing that she was not the loved one. He describes what makes her beautiful. Even so, Rachel is the one who Jacob's mouth is watering over and the description makes evident why. Now let's take a step back and consider Who Moses would have been writing this to? Leah would go on to give birth to six of the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. That's half of the entire nation of Israel that Moses was leading out of Egypt. The Egyptians had defined themselves as, had defined the Israelites as slaves for years, and because they were Jacob's family. And now, they're being led by Moses out as a free nation. When they looked in the mirror, there probably wasn't a whole lot that they liked that they saw because they had been defined by others for so long. But now, Yahweh was declaring to them in Exodus 19, you shall be my treasured possession, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. As they viewed themselves as undignified, God was in the business of redignifying them. God was in the business of redignifying them. And so back to our story as the story of Leah was being recorded, God was sure to highlight the mark of her beauty, showing God's good hand in dignifying her, despite how others might have viewed her. So let me ask you, let me give you a couple reflection questions to think through this week. And maybe if you're in a community group, I'd recommend that you answer these questions in that context. Question number one, what is one negative way that you think others see you? What is one negative way that you think others view you? And how can you see God's good hand in dignifying you despite that thing? Can you see God's good hand in dignifying you? That's what God's in the business of doing, especially for those who are trusting in him. No one knows, as we move on in our story, why Jacob set the bride price at seven years of labor. Why would you have set that so high but he seems to want to ensure Laban will say yes to his offer. He wants to make sure this is a ironclad deal that's going to get done. And then Laban gives the appearance of agreeing to this deal. By accepting his labor, he says, stay with me. And by noting that he'd rather she marry Jacob than one of the lazy shepherds that Jacob met at the well earlier. Notice Jacob's reliance on his own works in this deal. He relies on his own wisdom. He completes the deal as though it were simply a business transaction. He gives no thought to Yahweh's promise of grace. One commentator noted that Jacob intended to earn Rachel fairly and squarely by his own works and not grace. He could have stayed and continued to work with integrity for Laban, He could have prayed and waited for God to give him a wife. He could have asked a few more questions about the customs of Laban's people, but Jacob is focused on what he can see. God's grace, though, is greater than what we can see. I wonder what deals have you made without respect to God's promises, God's own grace in your life? What desires have you sought without going to the Lord in prayer? reminded of the old hymn the other day as as I heard my wife singing it over one of our kids. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh what peace we often forfeit. Oh what painless, needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Is this what you do in your decision-making? Or do you forfeit peace? Do you needlessly bear pain? Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 6 when he says, when you pray, that active prayer is a normal part of Christian living. And brothers and sisters, it's, it's how we are going to build a culture of discipleship here at Parkside. We go to God in prayer for ourselves, for our own situation. We go to God in prayer for our family. We go to God in prayer for other church members and for unbelievers. We trust God's promise more than other promises we may receive. We trust him more than what our eyes can see, more than our flesh, and more than advertisements to get more stuff. We trust him. Jacob seems to have trusted Laban's promise more than God's promise when you make a deal trusting your old eyes apart from seeking God's wisdom trouble is sure to follow this brings us to our third step of how trusting our old eyes brings trouble this morning and that's in a deception a deception so we've seen a, a desire lead to a deal which results in a deception After finishing his seven years of labor, Jacob requests to finally marry his betrothed. Jacob might show some naivete here because he doesn't seem to realize who he's dealing with. He doesn't mention the name of the wife he'd like to marry. In verse 21, see there, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. He doesn't say her name, and so the text and the story leads us to believe that Laban was probably more than happy to say, yes, you can marry one of my daughters. Had Jacob requested Rachel, maybe we would have expected Laban to cause another deception, work up something else, or to make Jacob aware of his customs. We'll never know, but the way that Jacob asked his question gave Laban The perfect, wide-open door to literally pull the wool over his eyes. The party Laban then threw was a fabulous feast, presumably one in which there was much flowing wine and much food. Jacob probably had a little too much to drink that night, celebrating the completion of his hard labor and the joining with his beautiful new wife, Rachel, or so he thought. Brides in those days would have remained veiled until the wedding night. And it was in the dark of night, probably while inebriated, that Jacob welcomed Laban's daughter, the one with the gentle eyes, to his tent and consummated his marriage to her. After the parentheses of verse 24, we read in verse 25 about the morning after as the sun began to rise. Look there with me in verse 25. And in the morning... Hina! Behold! Although this time it's more of an uh oh. It was Leah. If that isn't the pure unadulterated definition of anticlimactic, I don't know what is. More than that, for Jacob, this had to be the ultimate punchline. The deceiver has been deceived. The younger who usurped the older has now been tricked looking for the younger and being usurped by the older. That was the custom. Jacob didn't like customs. He went around customs. He didn't like this custom, that's for sure. The deceiver had been deceived. deceived. J- Laban all, uh, even used Jacob's own bag of tricks to deceive him. Jacob had first fed his father in the dark. So probably over the course of the seven years that Jacob was working, he probably you know, let Laban know different things about how that had actually gone down. So then Laban threw a feast to wine and dine Jacob before deceiving him in the dark of night. And it worked. Jacob was in bed next to Leah. He desired a wife and he got one. He desired Rachel, but he would have to work another seven years for her. Wisely, he received his payment on the front this time. He asked for it up front. So he struck another deal for the wife that he desired. But gaining her would not solve his problems. When we trust our old eyes, trouble will follow. After fleeing family conflict in Beersheba, Jacob's decisions here in Haran in the Mesopotamian region brought way more, conf- way more family conflict. And actually, the rest of the book of Genesis will just be one long story of Jacob's own family conflict. Trusting our old eyes brings trouble. When our desires cause us to make unwise deals, the end of our wayward ways is bitter deception. When we sin, we are making a deal with God's enemy for what we think will bring us joy, maybe just a little bit of happiness. And it will. It will bring us a little bit of happiness, enough to make it seem worth it for a moment. But in the end, the sweet taste turns to sawdust in our mouth. That which our mouths thirst for, our water for and promise to quench, only turns to a dry desert wasteland in our mouths. I wonder, have you experienced this? I'm sure you have. We're all broken sinners here. We've got stories of failure's galore. Wonder when was the last time you experienced that? This week? Yesterday, this morning? My daughter, Ember, has been loving listening to my wife and I read a book called Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. We'll have some in our bookstore next week for you if you want to purchase it. But in a conversation with Emily this week, Ember recounted one story where there's a little boy, and his name is Jude, who gets off the path toward the celestial city. Why does he get off the path? Well, because he sees an apple tree that looks, oh, so delicious. He realizes how hungry he is, and so he goes over to pick an apple against the advice of his companions. After taking a couple of sweet bites from the fruit, he begins to feel the bitter effects of the fruit in his belly. Now, Ember, of course, recounted this story in her own almost four-year-old words, but then Emily, my wife, took this as a great time to disciple Ember in this moment and conveyed a situation where Emily thought this was a moment in which I thought something would be sweet, but it turned out bitter. And Amber looked at her mom and responded, when I'm, meaning, when I'm mean to Canon, I think it will be sweet, but it always turns out bitter. <laughs> yeah, it does, not only for her, but. thinks being mean to canon will be sweet and it will satisfy the anger or the emotion inside, the jealousy, whatever. And she recognized it actually always turns bitter. Maybe you've eaten the fruit and it turned bitter for you. Maybe you're, you've done it and you're trying to hide it. Actually trying to make sure and you're wondering how long you can hold it in. Remind you of the words that we find in Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from God's sight. All are taken, are, are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who looks, to him who we must give an account. God already knows where we have taken the fruit and it's turned bitter. God already knows. If you believe this, it's not a time for you right now to continue to screw around and trust your old eyes. Maybe you've, like we've sung, searched the world for a love that could fill your heart. Maybe your whole life, like Jacob, is one long trail of desires leading to deceptive deals. Trusting your eyes, but always receiving trouble. And maybe you're wondering if there's an answer to this endless cycle you're on. Is there an answer to this? I don't like this trouble. Oh, friend, there is. His name is Jesus. And he also met a woman at a well. This woman made quite a few decisions that resulted only in a trail of troubles of broken relationships. But one day, she met Jesus at a well. Jesus showed her that God's grace is greater than what we can see right in front of us. He showed her that God's grace is greater than her own trail of trouble that she could see in her past. Jesus can give you new eyes that are filled with hope, which brings us to our second main point this morning. So jot this down, trusting with new eyes gives hope. Trusting our old eyes only brings trouble. Trusting with new eyes gives hope. And if you have time, I'd like for you to flip over to John 4 with me to just see a quick account of this encounter at the well. If you have a pew Bible, that's gonna be on page 889. So as you're flipping over to John 4, Jesus is on his way through Samaria, a country to the north of Israel. And at this well, Jesus begins to tell this lady about something he calls living water, which would be better and more satisfying to her than the thirst of the water at that well that she had. Confused, she asks in verse 12 if Jesus is greater than Jacob since he dug that specific well. Look at verse 13 with me to see Jesus' answer. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She wanted that kind of water, still didn't quite get what was going on. So as we to summarize the story, Jesus asked to talk with her husband, to which then she responds, I actually don't have a husband right now. Jesus reveals that he knows she has five past husbands and the man that she's currently living with is not her husband. Jesus reveals to her that he is aware that she has been trusting her own eyes, her own ways, which has only brought her trouble. Feeling a little exposed, she deflects into a debate with Jesus about worship. But then in verse 25, she finally confesses. Look there with me in verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus, peering into her eyes then, and even more so into her heart, says, I who speak to you am he. Her eyes fill with hope. Her eyes open for the first time. She is thrilled with hope. She sees finally a solution to the constant shame of her past. Her new eyes filled with hope because of who she's seen, who's right in front of her, She was no longer trusting what she could see. She had the experience of God's grace that was greater than what she could see. All of her shame. Look in verse 28 with me to see what she does. She goes back to town. She goes, The woman left her water jar and ran away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Notice what she says come see a man. Trusting with new eyes gives hope. What Jesus offered to this woman was not better circumstances. It was not another new husband. It was not a better physical water that she could actually uh, drink and allow her to never physically thirst again. Jesus offers her eternal life. He offers her salvation and she receives it. Salvation she receives was the source of her hope, her satisfaction. She had finally met a Savior who could save her from the penalty of her sin and the shame of past trouble. Friend, will you put an end to the cycle of unmet desires leading to deceptive deals? Will you stop today trusting your own sight, your own wisdom, and trust that Jesus' way is better? We sang earlier, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand, and it is. If you're waiting for a scientifically proven package of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead and, is, and offered living water and that eternal life and full satisfaction can be found in Jesus, you'll be waiting until your dying day. But if you turn to him and receive the living water that he offers you'll be satisfied you'll stop trusting your old eyes for the most part but you'll start looking to what is unseen that's what Paul describes in Romans 8:24 to 25 and just listen to these words he says for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen Is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. (laughs) This hope is greater than what we can see. This promise of salvation is greater than all our sin. This grace that is greater than all our shame. Trusting what you can see with your old eyes brings trouble but because of God's relentless grace. Jesus can give you new sight so that even though you may still see trouble around you, you can trust with new eyes, new eyes of hope that God's grace is greater. Let's pray. Lord, you promised to Jacob Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And Jesus, you have promised to those who trust you, I will never leave you or forsake you. These words echo so much truth, so much confidence in our ears, a truth that nothing else can follow through on. We need to be reminded that your grace is greater than what we can see. And so, Lord, would you grow us in trust this week? May we not trust our old eyes, but Lord, oh, Lord, be our vision. Be thou our vision. Be the eyes that we look through filled with hope. May we not trust our old eyes, but may we look to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.